0: Come on, Philly. Philly Collins in it? Oh, I mean, how can you cut Philly Collins off? <laughs> I would never disrespect Phil. I'm
1: guaranteeing this play works. And if not, it's probably not going on the thing. Exactly. Play the percentages. There's no chance you miss again.
0: What the f- is wrong with him? Oh my god! Oh my god! How did that work? Talking Cleveland Browns football with the best fans in all of SB Nation. You're listening to Straight No Chaser on Dogs by Nature. Now, here's your host with the mouse. My dad, Delonia Seven. And when I woke up this morning, I was feeling pretty dangerous. Celebration? Uh, no, I have nothing.
1: You're just gonna give the ball. I, apparently, I think I need to just run away. Six.
0: Never done Six. The
1: kind of player that is on your team, you have no
0: choice but to love. Him. Six. Woke up, woke up feeling dangerous. When I woke up this morning, I was feeling pretty dangerous. I woke up feeling dangerous. Woke up feeling dangerous, woke up feeling dangerous. Yeah, when I woke up this
1: morning, I was was feeling pretty dangerous. Woke up
0: feeling dangerous, woke up feeling dangerous. Just stepping in that danger zone. Rebecca got the ball, he got your D.C. Lean back thinking like, how he make that throw? Six. Baker Mayfield ain't
1: no snitch. Yeah, that's right, dude. Shoulda gave the ball to six Gave the ball to six give the ball to six Yeah, the ball
0: to six six. Get that ball to six Yeah, the ball to six That's right Cause he gon' keep you in the mix You best get a ball to six So, just go do my thing. Woke up feeling dangerous, stepping in that danger zone I to make a got the ball, he got your DC, lean back, thinking like, how oh, he made that throw? Six!
1: My Dogs by Nature brothers and sisters, I'm hoping this transmission finds you well. My name is Thelonious7, and you are listening to Straight No Chaser on Dogs by Nature. I want to wish everybody a happy 2019 and what an amazing year it was that is 2018 to be a Browns fan. What an amazing year from the very beginning, from the infamous Browns parade starting the year off all the way to the end of the year where you have... Baker Mayfield throwing that final interception, which sent the Baltimore Ravens into the playoffs. I mean, from the beginning to the end, it's been one of the most fascinating stories. I can't believe we had hard knocks in Cleveland documenting the process of what has been a fascinating, riveting, really unbelievable transformation of a city, of an organization, and of a fan base. Largely due to the work of John Dorsey. Largely due to the pick of Baker Mayfield at the top of the draft. Something which I think makes John Dorsey statue worthy. Would you think back to the beginning of this year? Remember what we were talking about? We were talking about John Dorsey doing the impossible. Taking a team that went 0 0- 16 bringing the same coach back and taking them from the bottom to the top of the division that's what his goal was for 2018 season and of course he fell short which we you know we all feel like it's too bad but do you realize how close we were how close this team was to being to bringing his vision of reality to fruition it was very close In the end, they didn't end up with a winning record—seven, eight, and one. You know, it's definitely disappointing when you think about it in terms of you know how close we were to being a playoff team. But also, if you take a few more steps back and think about it, the team was really close to bringing that goal to fruition for John Dorsey and really making an amazing, uh, historic turnaround for one year. And I I think that really speaks to the importance of the role of GM and the role of John Dorsey uh, for this organization, for this team in general. I was listening a little while ago uh, to someone talking about how there's been a lot of turnover uh, in terms of coaching this offseason, that Black Monday was a really difficult time for the coaches, but that very, very few GMs were, in fact, let go in the cycle and Uh, There's, of course, a lot of different reasons why people have attributed to this fact. But so far as to say that I think that the thing that's important about GMs is that you have stability in the position that, that the GM is offering to the organization because this stability just allows for everything else to run way more smoothly, you know, What it does when you have a GM that does their job properly, that assembles these things well, is it just allows everybody else in the organization not to think or to consider or to worry about these facets or these aspects of the operation. You've all been in situations in your job where you want to just focus on the thing that you're doing, the task that you're supposed to be focused on. You want to make sure that your area of expertise for operation is going fine. But at the same time, you can't do it because you're spending huge portions of your day worrying about needless things that don't pertain to what you're supposed to do. You're sitting in front of a copier trying to figure out why the toner button is jammed in for 15, 20 minutes. And in the end, you can't do your job like this. And this is what it is like in an organization where you have GMs changing in and out, in and out. Instead of thinking about the thing that you're supposed to think about, you're thinking about something else. Instead of thinking about getting the best game plan to organize your guys in the best way, you're thinking about, oh, what quarterbacks need to be in our team? I'm trying to do the GM's job, and I'm not trying to do the job that I need to do with what I have in front of me. That's really why the GM is an important position and why you don't see, why I think you should see less fluctuation at this realm, and I think that people are starting to pick up on this. Of course, you want to make sure you have the right guy there. The guy who understands and can evaluate talent properly and clearly seems like John Dorsey has met the bar in that regard. But in this year, this 2018 season, I was going to go back and look at the top five storylines, the ones that I thought were the most interesting and expose, you know, a little, you know, give a little exposition on some of these pieces, I suppose. Talk about them. First... And foremost, I want to say that I think that the overlying storyline in this year, uh, while you probably would say that it's Baker Mayfield, and actually, I think it might be just Baker Mayfield, but I would say that behind the Baker Mayfield storyline, to me, for the Browns, was probably the most important element that happened this year. I would say that the thing that kept the Browns from actually reaching. John Dorsey's uh, Hopes or dreams or aspiration Was the issue that occurred with Hugh Jackson as it related To Jimmy Haslam and John Dorsey and even De Podesta In some ways uh, from behind the scenes The offseason parade Last year the parade of futility Some people called it The parade that Danny Shelton railed against This parade was about the fans showing their uh, displeasure, their upset, frustration uh, due to the year that it was and the the influence that they felt Hugh Jackson had. I think the fan base after the 0-16 season lost all confidence, lost all faith in the organizational direction that Hugh Jackson had taken the team in. And as a way of showing their displeasure with the way that the organization was going with the fact that there was going to be no uh, transition or change in the direction of that team, people were frustrated with this. And I think that any normal, any sentient owner would have recognized at this point that when you see the results coming and, and the win totals being less than what's expected and you see what the product was in the field in 2017. And it takes a person of extraordinary something to continue to employ a person in this condition, in this situation. And the reason that you don't do it, the reason that no one would do this is because essentially this guy is in a position where he's starting a year where if he starts to lose games right away, people are going to lose faith in him. They already have the faith lost in him. He's going to come in a position where he's under a lot of pressure to win immediately, And when you put a person in a position where they must think about wins in short terms, this is where they kind of end up making mistakes in the long-term picture as well. This is why when you think about winning these first few games, you think about what you're doing in this short-term sense and not with the sense of what's the best for the team long-term. This is what allows you to invest capital in a bridge quarterback that you think might take you to around 500 at the beginning of the year, Rather than put time, energy, focus, and direction into the player you spent the most valuable asset on acquiring. And to me, when you're coaching not to lose, when you're coaching to keep your job in this way, this is really what set up the futility at the first half of the year in my perspective and in my opinion. Uh, the fact that Jimmy Haslam brought back Hugh Jackson to begin this year is literally the reason why we did not witness a miracle. And in some ways, I- I'm sitting back and I'm looking at this, just the story that's been occurring over the with the Browns over the past few years, particularly as Sashi Brown was in and out of the organization. And I, I think about the one character Kinda of behind the scenes who you don't really hear about, or you hear about him from time to time. You know, kind of like some, you know, mystical, mythical character who sneaks in, sneaks out. You don't know what he's doing, what's happening, the them. I don't know. Paul Di Podesta behind the scenes. I I feel like in some ways he's measuring situations almost like in a scientific manner to obtain some kind of, it's like you, you would for him at the beginning of the situation to kind of jettison all the talent and just how, how, what's the team like when you have literally no experience and a bunch of rookies and undrafted free agents, how, how good can this team be? Oh, one win. Well, what happens if we then put in an even worse quarterback? Uh, How many wins is that worth? Oh, zero. It's like some kind of an experiment. The first two years of this era. And then all of a sudden you bring in a team builder. Okay, well, what happens if we leave the coach the same? But then we put a bunch of talent players in. We we bring the talent in. How how do we evaluate like this kind of a change? And you sit back and you watch like this almost like laboratory like uh, function of the Browns conditions in the organization. And you're like, man, that's really interesting how you're able to gauge all these things basically looking at the Browns particular case study. Very strange. And in some ways, uh, you sit back and you look and you see this kind of like, oh, okay, you have this interesting valuation from this stuff, but it just seems really silly to have on some level sacrificed a year to get some information like that. Why would you keep a guy like Hugh Jackson around? And why why aren't people more upset that that was allowed to occur occurred in any type of an organization? I mean, bringing in a lame duck coach to fritter away the first half of the year, chasing wins, using this old retired perspective. After you spent a number one pick acquiring a quarterback like Baker Mayfield, a dude who had the pedigree and the experience to play immediately. Literally, that was really the the main calling point for a guy like Baker Mayfield comes into the league ready, but instead... You have a coach who's dead set against playing him right off the bat. Not even giving him a chance, giving him no reps. I mean, this is supposed to be in the name of protecting your young quarterback. But I mean, as soon as the Jets game happened, as soon as it went down like this, I mean, it looked in some ways that Hugh Jackson was going to be vindicated just by the presence of Baker Mayfield. But quite frankly, you could tell. You could tell as soon as he came into position and the prominence and Baker Maple got into this role, Hugh Jackson's days were numbered. They were numbered. How could you have a guy like this sitting on the bench? And then how could you have a guy like this and continue to underperform week after week? I mean, it was shocking. It was shocking to see how it happened. And after the Pittsburgh game, I mean, it, it, the writing was on the wall. Pittsburgh, a team that's not even making the playoffs. You're going there and you're not even competing on the road with these guys. You got a quarterback like Baker Mayfield and that's what's happening. I don't know. It was very, very difficult uh, for me as a fan to observe this. And for me, I feel like that decision not to remove Hugh Jackson. Is probably an uh, probably not the most publicized or big fancy highlight of this year. Although people I'm sure talk about it or whatever. But for me, I think that's the number one thing. It's not you know happiness that Hugh Jackson finally got removed by the middle of the season. It's indignation that it wasn't done at the beginning of the year and that that decision cost us an entire year of development. And actually puts Baker Mayfield in a position to have in fact a third offense co- a third offensive coordinator before his second year in the NFL. That's insane. So Like I said, with that story put away, the next biggest story I would say this year, of course, would be what I would describe as the Baker Mayfield era. You know, know, what did we think at first at Baker Mayfield? Now, here on Straight No Chaser, I've been very, very clear about my initial position on Baker Mayfield. I, in fact, called Baker Mayfield a knucklehead. I even said worse things about him. I've attacked, I attacked him at the beginning of the year on his breakfast burritos, which were really unappetizing. And, you know, I, I kind of stand by the criticisms in a certain way, but at the same time, like this stuff is like in, in the rearview mirror for me, man, because I'm clearly was wrong about this guy's influence on this organization. I was clearly wrong about. My perception of what would happen when Baker Mayfield came to Cleveland, he has been exactly as easy weave and some of the other uh, guys who were on the dogs by nature network have been speaking. They were very, very good in their assessment. and, And in some ways I think they may have undersold him in terms of how valuable he's been to this team and organization. So for me, I'm I'm letting you know I was clearly wrong about this guy. And where I was at first on him, I mean, I never had any issue with him as a as a football player. I mean, his his passing, his ability as a passer, what he was doing on his tape was fine. There was no issue with that with me. It was the off-the-field stuff and the way he handles winning. And for me, I guess like on one side. I guess I'm looking at the backlash from the outside perspective versus the backlash from the inside perspective inside. I'm willing, I'm willing to and ready to defend this dude. Anytime anybody says anything about him by now, like I am 100% on the Baker Mayfield bandwagon as he really is driving this thing through the city of Cleveland in a way that we haven't seen since Bernie Kosar. I mean, it's, It's one thing to be a believer, like psychologically to be like, okay, yeah, this guy is good. This guy's a great quarterback. But for me, like I felt Baker Mayfield's spirit all the way from where I'm living far, far away from Cleveland. I feel it in my heart. And when he won that game in New York, like immediately songs began to come in my mind. I began to think about Baker Mayfield spliced with the hallelujah course. And from there it went on to the song that you heard at the beginning of this episode. I mean, it's not the best or most interesting, but in some ways, the song just kind of writes itself, and that's how it's been since Baker Mayfield's been winning for the Browns. Something's been different. Everything's been changed, and you can feel it. It's, you can you know what you you know what it is when you feel it, and I've definitely felt it with Baker Mayfield in this team in this city. It's been amazing. And like I said before, that's the other thing I feel when you when you have a quarterback, you're willing to sit there and fight for him, no matter what you're looking at, no matter what you're seeing, and no matter what's going on around it. And for me, in this last mm, month or so, there's been a ton of backlash with Baker Mayfield, particularly around the Hugh Jackson situation. I mean, I've had a show where I sat and talked about it specifically, about how crazy it was that that people have been hypercritical of him for saying what he said. And and, and in my opinion, I don't really feel that he's done anything inappropriate uh, as far as, you know, in terms of what's the spirit or the action. He's playing football. They're playing football. He's, you know, shaking the guy's hand. He didn't like refuse his handshake. And even if he did, that's of course, it's not the nicest thing to do. And it's disrespectful and people are going to get on you for that kind of stuff, but he shook the dude's hand, but he feels how he feels and he's allowed to feel how he feels. There's nothing wrong with feeling how you feel. And there's nothing wrong with someone asking you how you feel. And you say, hey, look, that's how I feel. And in some ways, I don't really understand why media members have kind of coalesced around this issue, except for in one way, I guess I can. I guess when you see a player in some way kind of getting out of line getting into the coaching realm and making kind of disparaging comments, remarks or insinuations about coaches. In some way, people kind of feel like this is players stepping out of line. And I kind of feel like this is what's happened with Baker Mayfield here. People think he's stepping out of line. And so people are trying to get on the bandwagon uh, to, to call him out and to make him, you know, make him feel like he has something to regret for his opinion, I suppose. I don't know, but I find this situation particularly strange because of the way that I think I even mentioned it the first time. There was an article in Uninterrupted where a guy went into Baker Mayfield in terms of uh, the racial implications of what was happening. Uh, You have a, what he would call, somebody might call like uh, an entitled white player saying something about a black coach and in this situation, you have a lot of intellectuals and thinkers jumping into the fray, making statements, saying things that sometimes are warranted and sometimes aren't just because of the optics of the situation, because it looks a little weird. And for me, I i mean, I wrote the, the first piece. I think I talked about Sal, but there's another one, a dude who I used to really have a lot, of, you know. One thing I want to be very careful about is I, I'm, this is a this is you know we have an anti-political stance here at Dogs by Nature and I am not one to violate this type of a thing so I don't want to come off as being as pushing any type of agenda just kind of making kind of a philosophical point now of course these even philosophical points can be construed as political so I apologize in advance if I'm overstepping any lines here I mean Easy Weave as the ultimate editor can go through it pull it out if he needs to. But for me, in any case, there was a piece that I'd seen on Twitter from a guy who I had typically respected, you know, for a long period of time, a guy named uh, Michael Eric Dyson, and back in the in, this, in the late 1999, I, th- I thought he had some really interesting points, and I found him very interesting. I found him cool, but listening to some of the things he had said about Baker Mayfield in, in this in this. This, text that he texted, or this tweet that he made the other day I found very, very uh, off-putting Very, very, I don't know Here's what I'm going to quote what he said That way that way, you can construe can what you'd like to from it But he said specifically Spoiled white boy You ain't the first player to have his coach Leave and go to a rival team What he posted, to do He got fired He Took the job He was offered He ain't independently wealthy Be grateful he handed you the starting job. Hashtag white privilege. I sat back and I read this. And and you know what? On some level, it's, it's the Twitter culture that we have now. You can't really take or make too much about this. A lot of people are just looking for attention. They're looking, they're media people. They're looking for that controversy as Freddie Kitchens once stated before. They're searching for controversy. So in some ways you see, when you see statements like this, where players or where coaches or where somebody starts to like, they tease these issues out. They're just trying to highlight controversy so as to draw attention to their points of view and to get people's looks ire or whatever, to get a conversation going, any kind of conversation going that keeps them maybe in the relevant in the eyes of people. And for me, I, I kind of get what this is going. So I don't want to get too bent out of shape when somebody makes a an, an assessment or an opinion like this. How serious is this really? But I mean, you sit there and you think about this. And you're like, what? White privilege. This is a white privilege issue. And I'm like, I don't even want to get into it in some ways because obviously there's so much at stake in a discussion like that. People are going to construe all kinds of things about statements in defense or in support of something like this. But in my opinion, I, I think that this situation is exactly why race or any issue like this should stay far away from football for the most part there are definitely issues at stake that do invite race into discussion and when you talk about race in this context when guys like this interject race into these situations it makes it so that the real issues that come up that really actually affect people that actually have an impact on the lives of a lot of people can't really be discussed in a good way. And I I really find that to be, it's very frustrating as a a media consumer that there's so much conflation between issues like this due to people injecting these politically charged items into a sports-based discussion. So for me, I feel like it's very strange looking at Baker Mayfield being a guy on your team as opposed to the way that it looks like from the outside. And I think that's another thing that's kind of jaded me with respect to this team and this organization right now. Watching Baker Mayfield plant that flag in Ohio State's 50 yard line, to me, there was something very. I I really did not like the way that he won in that situation. And I was very concerned about what it would be like when he's going to lose. If he came to Cleveland, he would have issues with winning and losing. And how's he going to handle it if he's the kind of guy who wins like that? That was really my probably my biggest reason I didn't want him to be drafted into this organization. Just because I felt like it would be difficult for him at the beginning. And then I was also worried about his upside, but whatever. In any case, I I definitely had an issue with him at the beginning of his career because of that kind of stuff. But now from the other side. Like I said, I'm really willing to fight for him Almost do anything Totally and completely change the organization And for me The story of the 2018 season Can't be written without Baker Mayfield Going forward The future is as bright as I can imagine As bright as I've ever imagined it So right after Talking about Baker Mayfield The good, the bad, the ugly All the stuff associated with this guy I think that number two or the number three thing I guess after you I don't know how you're gonna know I'm counting these things but the third thing that I would say after Baker Mayfield era beginning as being the most important story of the 2018 season would be another story that's really an overlooked aspect of what happened this last year and by far the easiest thing that could have been done to have corrected a flaw in the team structure That ended up costing the team so dearly. And that was, of course, the selection of subpar place kickers in Cleveland. Something that has plagued Cleveland ever since they didn't renew the contract of Phil Dawson. And this year, if you just go back and get a copy of the schedule, you'll see there are so many games that have been lost specifically because we did not have a kicker. and even some of the games that we you know that maybe weren't directly related to the kicker were affected by not having the confidence of a kicker that you're going to. All of that stuff happens and happened in 2018, in my opinion very needlessly. For me, I, I look at this this last year. And I think to myself, if Justin Tucker was the Browns kicker, they would have been 12-4. and 4. This is a team that finished 7-8-1. and 1. We're talking about five lost wins. I'm just, five lost wins just due to not having a league average kicker. You know, I'm not talking about... You know, you didn't have to have Justin Tucker to get that record. But if they did have a guy like Justin Tucker... The team was 12-4. and 12-4. and four. That's home all the way through the playoffs. That's how good the team could have been if it were not for that meaningless flaw. Suppose they kept Cody Parkey instead of Zane Gonzalez at the beginning of this year. I mean, one bad thing about this is you probably would end up with Hugh Jackson as your coach still. As... Really, a lot of those losses were concentrated in the beginning of the year. Of course, the tie with Pittsburgh. Of course, in New Orleans, which a kicker would have certainly, certainly brought a victory to Cleveland. Tampa Bay as well. And don't forget about the game at the end of the year. That could have been won with some decent kicking. In fact, there was enough offensive production to have produced a victory in that game on the road against the top defense in the NFL in a must win game. That's how good your quarterback is in Cleveland. In any case, not having a kicker is one of the worst things that John Dorsey has done for the team and for this organization. And of course, I mean, of course, there's the Josh Gordon situation. I'm admittedly biased about that one, so I'm not going to go back there. And you also have, of course, spending the top pick of the third round on Tyrod Taylor, which, you know, sometimes I wonder if the worst moves that have been made for the Cleveland Browns this last year were due to Hugh Jackson's influence. I kind of feel like Hugh Jackson wanted to have that bridge quarterback to keep the pressure off of the rookie even though it was the most prepared rookie in NFL history I don't know but clearly John Dorsey is statue worthy I've said it before I'll say it again he's statue worthy because he picked Baker Mayfield at the beginning of this draft Even though it wasn't consensus by any stretch of the imagination. He made a pick of faith, a pick of vision. And like I said, that kind of pick gets you statues. And I think he's earned it. But going forward, you have to ask yourself what's going to happen with Dorsey. Even though you have those positive things that he's done. Look at what's coming up in this draft. With what's happening. We got lucky pick number 17, but where's the value in this draft? Looks like it's on the defensive side of the ball, which isn't the worst thing. There's a couple of decent wide receivers that might be able to help this team. But when you look at the structure of this team, where the talent is of this team, man, oh man, he can go in a lot of directions in this draft. Right now, for me, I really want to see, like I said last year, a scat back, that Neil Eric Metcalf in this draft. Duke Johnson's not going to give you six points in the return game. Just not that same kind of threat from anywhere on the field. But just having a guy like that, it's not even his actual value, what he's going to produce, but just that stressor that can cause the mistakes for defenses and special teams. We need a guy like this on the team. The special teams for sure need some, some kind of kind of lotion or something. I don't know. So after the, the issue of Baker Mayfield and the kicker being the ridiculously weak link in his organization and team, which cost them the most value, the number three thing that I would say was the biggest story of the year was the fact that in the past two years, there were five first round picks and that all five of the first round picks in the last two years have shown themselves to be cornerstones of this organization. Starting at the top, 2017, I don't know, is it the 2017 draft? Miles Garrett coming into Cleveland and absolutely being a dominant force for this organization. After Miles Garrett, you have additionally Jabril Peppers and David Njoku, who at first, you know, had some growing pains, let's be honest. But oh my goodness, Peppers at the end of that Denver game. Showing himself to be a man. And you know what I really love about Jabril Peppers. I mean, I know we came from a university that we I'm not really supposed to be talking about. But that whole thing where he got accosted in a CVS by somebody, you know, trying to say whatever about him. What he did after that? What he did after that interview came out? Shutting everybody up and doing what he's supposed to do on the football field. i I can't say enough for a guy who does that and it's something that like i mean people see and people notice it but for me i deeply appreciate players who go out and deliver after they put the chips out on the table like that and i appreciate the work of jabril peppers this year i also look at the work that david and joku has done this year as well coming into this year he had the issues with drops, but in training camp i remember being very very high i said so many positive things about that guy Just because of how much better he was moving and how much more natural he felt in the position. Of course, the drops were still there, and I don't know how much work he did in the jugs machines during the year, but by the end of the year, he was a much more reliable target. And really, a tight end like Njoku is going to be effective to the degree he's like a reliable target, like that guy over the middle who you throw the ball to on third and eight who's going to make the catch every time. I mean, he was dropping passes earlier in his career. You're like, how? I mean, of course, he can break you down for a big play from time to time. But how valuable is this guy really? He can't make that catch on third and eight to keep the drive alive. Well, now by the end of this year, you see that Njoku is developing into that guy who's being in that role, playing that role for the Browns and making vital, critical catches where last year he was the one who's dropping the ones who could seal games for them. Those same critical plays. So for me... Looking at the fact that you have in 2017, uh, Njoku, Peppers, and Garrett, and in 2018, also the pick of Denzel Ward on your defense is a cornerstone and a Pro Bowl player, along with Miles Garrett. And there's no more awesome news for the Browns and the Browns' future than this. No more awesome news than this. I guess the next most important story I would say was... Nick Chubb as a legitimate phenomenon. Uh, Nick Chubb came into the Browns. I mean obviously being known for that serious injury he uh, incurred at playing at Georgia. I mean after starting off his career being unbelievable as a freshman uh, with ridiculous sick levels of production, going down with injury, coming back and you know being very productive in his last games as a college player at Bulldogs area UGA in any case comes to the NFL sits behind uh, Carlos Hyde so for me that's something that's really worth revisiting I want to go back and talk about this for a second there's an issue of course where Carlos Hyde was getting a lot of work he was actually in my opinion not having a very bad uh, time with production he was doing basically what people expected him to do His pass protection was probably better than Chubb's at the beginning of the year. But he was getting work, workload, high workload numbers in terms of carries. And while at the same time, Chubb was ripping off huge game breaking runs and not seeing the field at all. It was a very puzzling, head scratching thing. And when it was questioned, it seemed like there was never any positive um, answer for it. It seemed like it's still the same reasons, the same players getting the same calls. And I found that to be a really curious situation because really, I think the game before um, he was out and they they shipped him off to to Jacksonville. The game before this, I, I don't feel like he had a bad game. I felt like he was fine. Of course, the Browns had a loss. And I felt like the week after, the Browns could have really used him in a very critical goal line situation where I feel like he was a better option in that kind of a spot. One thing I like about Chubb is Chubb really has the ability to break off huge runs that, that really Hyde had no prayer of doing. But the thing about Chubb is he also could lose yards and have negative plays in a way that Hyde never did didn't usually get as much of I mean Hyde might get you two three yards on the play more consistently than Chubb but of course Chubb gives you the field the threat of a home run ball and it long term you want to feed a guy with that home run threat a legitimate home run threat like this guy but at the same time that doesn't mean that you don't have a role or a place for a guy like Carlos Hyde and I that's why kind of little sad that they didn't find a way to better marshal or utilize that talent still to this point, I'm a little bit upset about the move with Hyde. Not that it's not even an Ohio State thing. I just feel like it was a kind of a strategic mistake in terms of lo- but you know there was a lot of stuff going on around that time, and I don't really pretend to know all the influences of this type of a, a decision coming into play in Cleveland. So I don't really understand it all, but to me, it seemed like kind of a needless kind of a play. At the same time, getting John Dorsey a fifth round pick for the next year's draft isn't nothing. Don Dorsey has produced some interesting players at this level, namely Jannard Avery. And I feel really good about its potential to do something nice with those picks in the future. The future is so bright here in Cleveland. I'm excited for the playoffs this year. And usually I can't watch football at the end of the year. For you know, at least a little bit after the season's over. I'm just so. Jaded and I just don't want to ever see a football after witnessing so many losses you know in a season usually I suppose but you know right now after this season after this finish I'm feeling healthy enough and hopeful enough to wistfully imagine the excitement that awaits us in the near future so at the end of the year of course I wanted to go over my top players on the Browns offense and defense as a way of understanding this team's identity. So, if you're scoring at home, I go from the top to the bottom. It's very obvious who the best player on the offense is, Baker Mayfield. Number two, we have uh, Nick Chubb, who I think has shown himself to be an exceptional running back. A player who I think that going into next year, they're going to have to utilize a little bit more in the passing game. But who I feel is definitely uh, the player... uh, of consequence to deal with on this offense in terms of an offensive weapon. After that, I would say the next most valuable uh piece on the team is the offensive line. I could want to say, like, really, I don't know. It's weird saying offensive line there. I'm gonna pick a guy, Zeitler. Zeitler's my O-line representative. And really, it could be Zeitler, it could be Treder for his gutty performance this year. It could also be Batonio as well. I mean, it can be Robinson for the the miraculous performance he's turned in, given the fact that he's, he's getting shoved in there in the middle of the year. So for me, there's a lot of people that have done well. And I'd say that for me, the third level strength of the team, the third best strength is the offensive line headed by Kevin Zeitler. At number four, we have Juice. Some people might say he should be a little higher. I think this is about right for where Juice is. I think he's been an incredibly tough player this year, making catch after catch. I mean, he. I mean, some of the drops were. You know, see some. You know, occasionally a drop that you don't like to see, but at the same time, very, very physical, very, very, making some great. I mean, he's he's been everything he's needed to be for this team. I still think he's more of a two-slot guy, but kind of forced into that number one role. But going into next year, I can see him being that possession, reliable receiver for the team. Moving forward, a, a safety blanket, if you will, for Baker Mayfield. Now, number five at the top five, I have David Njoku. David Njoku definitely has shown himself to be in the second half of the year, the weapon that the Browns can build around on the offense. Love David Njoku, a huge body, great catching ability, big catch radius, and the ability to stretch the field over the middle and on the outside is a mid-match in the red zone. There are very few players that can do what he does. Love David Njoku. Right after him, another mid-round selection player, Callaway, Antonio Callaway, who has shown himself to be an incredibly valuable weapon, a talented player, catching slots, catching balls out of the slot, catching the ball downfield, stretching the field a bit. He's been really good for me this year as well. Surprising how reliable he's been given the fact that he's a rookie and over the course of the year has become a more reliable weapon on the outside for Cleveland. After that at 7, I have Hollywood Higgins, who has been a revelation this year and one of Baker Mayfield's safety blankets as well, making big catch after big catch when the ball's in his area. He just finds a way to come down with the ball. Such a reliable guy, not the fastest of receivers, but definitely one of the most Useful and reliable guys on the organization in the Browns. Surprisingly, uh, I have Perryman and 8 in front of Duke Johnson. Fels and DeVal rounding out the top 11 in the Browns. So you can see the Browns' future has a lot of uh, first, second, third-year players littering it all the way through. Perryman, a young guy with great speed as well. The guy who I'm kind of surprised about is Duke, a guy who made about 15 three-year, $15 million contract at running back, really not living up to the production that his contract seems to have indicated he might be able to produce for the team. So you're a little worried about what's happening with Duke Johnson moving forward. But in the end, that does tell you a little bit about what the needs are for the team going into this draft period. Of course, I'm looking at wide receiver, I'm also looking at perhaps tight end, a second tight end as the is lower on the list and so it's Fels, although maybe Fels was okay as well for what he was doing in terms of his blocking role. Now on the defensive side of the football, we start of course at the top where it's no, there's no surprise, it's uh, Miles Garrett, it's Denzel Ward, but at three I found a little bit of surprise when I thought about Jabril Peppers, as I felt that he's really made his uh, name known in the last games making plays that look like as easy weave has suggested a real legitimate first rounder really like how he's come into his own this last part of the year i also love the gutty performance of shogun larry ogunjobi as he's been able to play through his uh, bicep injury tricep injury something that seems like should keep somebody out for the year refusing to go down and still giving his all and still playing at a at a good level to give them productive uh, efforts out of that central defensive line positions. Uh, after Shogun, I had Schobert, Demarius Randall, and Collins, who I think will probably be a high likelihood of, uh, there's a high likelihood that the Browns will replace him as he is one of the highest paid players, still not one of the highest producers on the organization. Although, I felt like he wasn't as bad as some people have suggested he was. After Collins, I have Money Mitch, who I felt was good, uh, given his situation and circumstances with the injuries. Ogba, after that, also with some injury issues, but at the same time, I felt Ogba played really well this year when he was on the field. Kirko, injury stuff as well, but also Jannard Avery in the top 11, who I feel like has a chance to push his way up the roster and get on the field a little bit more going into the future. So if there's one more thing I wanted to revisit at the end of this year, it was my preseason quarterback rankings. At the beginning of this year, I felt, well, at the beginning of the draft class last year, I felt like the rankings were as such. Number one was Sam Darnold. I had Allen at two, Mayfield at either three or four. I don't remember if it was Mayfield three or four. I think it was Mayfield at three. Rosen four and Lamar Jackson at five. I liked really all five quarterbacks. Maybe Mayfield I liked maybe a little less than the rest of them. But I still liked all these quarterbacks in this way, around this way. In the end, I would say that out of all these rankings, the thing I wanted to make sure I was very clear about was just how wrong I was about Lamar Jackson. I really didn't feel very good about the way that he would. I mean, I actually felt like the things that he's doing well, he would do well. I just didn't know how valuable his effort and his style of quarterback play could be uh, for a defense, I felt like the Browns were scrambling all day long, trying to contain the run against that squad. And he was at the at the spirit of his effort. And for me, I felt like he was way more effective than I thought he would be. And I feel like over the next year or two, as he develops his passing acumen, he could just be a a terror for the AFC North. And I th- there's a couple things holding him back. I think he has a little bit of talent concerns around him, but over the next couple years, as this team begins to get some some more talent in place to build around him. You kind of get scared about what's happening with those dirty birds over there, man. I
0: can't,
1: can't really deal with that. That's kind of, it's kind of sad. I want to make sure that I was very clear about my feelings about that. To me, he's not you know, better than the guy that we got. So I guess if we were to go back and redraft. With the five quarterbacks selected with five teams, if you go back and have a re-draft of the team, the guys that were selected at, at the beginning of this 2018 draft, I would say that the first pick would certainly 1,000 times out of 1,000 times be Baker Mayfield for the Cleveland Browns. I don't think anybody is questioning this decision at all by now. And that's what I'm trying to say. For me, I feel like that just one of the things that cements Dorsey's legacy. What, a, what an amazing pick that was given... The state of the national media's attention. How people were feeling about that pick. To pick this guy and to be as right as he was. It's unbelievable for Dorsey. For me. Number two. Is where it gets interesting. I think if I was the Jets. And I could go back. I don't think I would take Darnold. I think I would take Josh Allen. And I. It's very funny to say this. but Why somebody doesn't take maybe Lamar Jackson in this space. But for me. I think that Josh Allen has been the guy. Who is. You can see that over the next couple of years, as he begins to get, the game starts to slow down for him. And the the, the thing about the, the NFL is it's a quarterback driven league and you have a quarterback who is a monster and can stand tall and nobody can hit him, you know, and he can run through people. he can run through secondary players and he's just been a terror with the ball in his hands. But at the same time, he can sit back and push the ball downfield to an amazing degree. And once he gets a couple of wide receivers that are accustomed to him and what he does, after he gets some talent, he can put the ball literally anywhere on the field. It's just a matter of time until that guy develops into one of the, the top five or six best weapons in the league. It just There's just not guys who have that physical skill set. Now, I, certainly I could be wrong about this. And maybe in two more years, you're going to be like, oh my, how did this guy regress the way that he did after the year that he had as, as a rookie? And it's very possible you could say that about Mayfield, Darnold, Jax, anybody, any of these guys, you could say that stuff about. So for real, part of the evaluation is that it should be a longer three-year evaluation. And you don't want to say too much about it until people have a chance to break down what they do well and what they don't do well and scheme against that stuff. So for me, you can't say anything yet, but I think right now if it was done again, I think that Josh Allen should be the pick in New York and they they might not be so keen about that. If, if not, Allen, maybe a guy like Lamar Jackson who could make them a little more dangerous team, especially with a defense like that, right? With a defense like that, you need a quarterback that's not going to turn the ball over as much. That's really why I think it works so much in in, um, Buffalo as well with Jackson. After that, I would say the next quarterback to go would be Lamar Jackson. Uh, Lamar Jackson in Buffalo would be a great fit, especially with the defense, for the same reasons that Allen's a good fit in Buffalo now. After that, you would say that the Cardinals probably would have ended up with Darnold, which is not the worst pick for the Cardinals, and I feel like Darnold probably would have been a a better fit there than Rosen. Uh, Who knows what's going to happen there long-term, but that team as an organization, top to bottom, has got a lot of difficult issues. So I can't really get too uh, bent out of shape either way about Rosen. But for me, that would be the last guy picked. That's the guy that I think um, would be the one that people were, you know, the, the least excited about his future and his prospects, especially in that organization, which seems a bit rough. But as far as us in Cleveland, it's wheels up, man. It's Lights Lights are on. We're ready to go. It's ready to happen for this next year. I'm looking so forward to getting into this offseason, to seeing the rest of this playoffs, of course, but to getting into the offseason and seeing what players are available to improve the Browns, seeing what players are available in the league at large, and, and, and getting ready for the chance of the 2019 season being the season that we remember for a long time in Cleveland.
0: You've been listening to Straight No Chaser on Dogs by Nature. We're releasing a new episode every Wednesday and you can find us anywhere you typically find podcasts, which is Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts. So go ahead and subscribe and check us out.